This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to be speaking to Alicia Ogawa, Director of the Center on Japanese Economy and Business at Columbia Business School. Alicia is an expert in all things related to activism in Japan, and in particular, cross-border activism, U.S. activists, U.K. activists, foreign activists, launching campaigns at Japanese companies. She is also an assistant adjunct professor at Columbia School of International Public Affairs, and since 2008, she has been a consultant to one of the largest U.S.-based activist hedge funds. Alicia also spent 15 years in Tokyo, where she was a bank analyst and director of research for Nico Solomon Smith Barney. Thank you so much for taking the time, Alicia. It's always delightful to be with you, Ron. Okay, cool. So let's start with the big picture, and then we'll kind of narrow it down a little bit. One of the things that I feel has attracted U.S. activists to Japan over the years and in recent years is the Abe administration and the stewardship code and governance codes adopted by his government over periods of time. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe announced last month that his resignation, citing health reasons. And before we talk about what might come next, I wondered if we could just talk a little about his legacy. The Abe administration implemented the stewardship code originally in 2014, governance codes in 2015, amended in 2018. And the sense I get is this has put pressure on Japanese boards and sought to counter this kind of investment culture in Japan that has historically encouraged companies in Japan to hold equity stakes and other Japanese companies and other issues around that. So I guess to start off with 50,000 foot level, Alicia, could you talk a little about how these governance stewardship codes have impacted Japan? I'm wondering, have they been effective? Do you agree with my thesis that this maybe has encouraged some foreign activism in the country? And how is Prime Minister Abe's legacy regarding all this? Yeah, all of that is a great question. I think that most people would say that the Prime Minister's legacy is going to be the incredible aggressive monetary policy that he undertook in conjunction with the Bank of Japan, you know, which lowered the cost of the yen, which made exports boom. And so they never reached 2% inflation, but they did get to 1%. But for me, the reason that I set up this program at Columbia studying Japanese corporate governance and stewardship is because I do think that his approach to these issues, it really is the only way that the Japanese economy is going to be reinvigorated. Macro policy is one thing, but unless the Japanese private sector becomes more innovative, more efficient, more risk-taking, there is no hope for the economy. So for me, this was the most important thing that Abe did. And it has had an enormous change in consciousness. We're still waiting to see really what the concrete results of all these initiatives have been. You know, there's been a lot of talk, there's been a lot of shuffling of the checkers on the board, but there's not so much in terms of rubber meeting the road yet. Yeah, one thing that struck me as I looked into the governance codes, for example, is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're generally kind of guidelines, right? They're not strictly enforceable rules with enforcement mechanisms saying that you'll get punished if you don't meet these guidelines. And so companies have been adopting them and following them, but slowly, I guess, maybe. Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's called comply or explain. So you have to either obey the rule or explain why you're not obeying the rule, but there is no penalty for not obeying the rule unless it's in the form of market discipline. The Japanese legal system is quite different from the United States, and I think the attitude is that that if you try to prescribe specific things, then people will just go around and find a way to, which is how the United States works, right? But the complier explain system is popular in other countries as well. And this is the way that Japan has decided to go. There are a number of thought leaders in Japan who are 
losing patients and feel that we have to legislate some of this. For example, the Complier Explain system is the corporate governance code, it's the stewardship code, but to be a listed company on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, there are hard and fast rules about mm-hmm. unique independent director and so on and so forth. Right. So there is some who look to the Japan Stock Exchange, which is going to announce a big reform and renovation next year and in some hopes that they will put some hard teeth to some of mm-hmm. these rules. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, but is it fair? It was, you know, my assessment that the expectations around these stewardship codes and governance codes have attracted foreign activists into Japan. Is that a fair assessment? Abe famously came to New York the year that he was elected in 2012 and said, buy my Abenomics. And there was an enormous rush of foreign investment into the country, partially, mm-hmm. I think, largely to do with the monetary policy, particularly for the long-only funds. But there was this expectation on the part of activists and engagement funds that there was finally an opportunity. And in some cases, I think there was an overly optimistic expression. I think I said to you, there was a point where if I ever heard the phrase low-hanging fruit one more time, I would have lost it. (laughs) There was a stampede in. And I think the big activist funds quickly figured out that this was a game that was stacked against them. Mm -hmm. A little bit more complicated than they anticipated, I guess, eh? Very few of the, you know, the Elliots, the Servians, the Carl Icons, the Starboards, very few of them are there. And if they are there, they haven't done anything new in a while. But the small cap space, which is less protected by the vested interests, that mm-hmm. space is on fire. So every year you see a new record set for shareholder proposals and for aggressive actions and so on and so forth. But as I say, that's not really going to move the needle in corporate governance in the big Japanese Fortune 500 companies. Okay, so let's shift to a more recent rule adjustment amendment that I've personally been on a roller coaster ride a lot about. You and a right. lot of other people. <laughs> so this is, of course, as uh, you know, you and I have talked about this many times, which is the recently implemented rules for foreign investors in, in Japan. These are amendments to the Foreign Exchange and Foreign Trade Act. And so initially, onlookers for month expected the package of measures to be very difficult for Western activist investors who launched campaigns and start to install dissident directors in Japan. And then as the rules took effect, they were fully adopted in May and implemented by June, June 7th. Foreign activist investors I spoke to were more optimistic about the rules that they, you know, arguing to me that they weren't as prohibitive for non-Japanese activist hedge funds investing in Japan and launching campaigns and trying to get directors elected as they initially anticipated. And so I guess uh, if you could walk us through your thoughts, what are your initial impressions from these rules? And then how have you found them to be, you know, obviously it's still early since they were just implemented, but how have you found them to be so far? Well, I think when they were first announced in October, November, the entire foreign investment community's hair caught fire and everybody was just just so agitated. And in fact, there was a quote by the president of the Japanese Stock Exchange, the JPX, he said to the Financial Times, quote, this is idiotic. Mm-hmm. And the reason there was so much of a reaction against it is that they were making life pretty impossible. Uh, you know, the reporting requirements were onerous and your ability to exercise your rights as a shareholder were extremely limited. But to the Ministry of Finance's credit, they 
took the time to understand why people were reacting so violently. And the, as you point out, the final version of the rules seemed to be quite reasonable. A number of people, you talk to the same people I do, said, you know, this is actually much more transparent than the United States and some parts of Europe, and we can live with this. But of course, the proof's in the pudding. And there have been a couple of really troubling cases that took place during this AGM season. So maybe the initial relief or joy, final version of the rules, maybe it was a little bit overdone. Yeah, no, it's interesting. There's definitely been a few campaigns that appeared to make it look like the new foreign ownership rules were not that difficult. I was thinking of this Oasis campaign at Suncorp, where they got a lot of directors on the board there. My initial interpretation is, oh, that you'd make it so that if you have a presentation and you want to see the company consider M&A, that could get you caught in this restriction. You might have to have your, your position reduced. You might not be allowed to nominate directors. But the way I understand it is that it really, the for activists, the, the toughest part is if you have you actually have a proposal and you want to nominate internal candidates from your fund or submit a proposal calling the company to do a spinoff. And this, of course, in these specialized sectors that this law is focused on, the laws that intended for national security protection, then those are the ones that would be more difficult. So, but then I saw, oh, this is interesting, this <laughs> two proxy fights at Toshiba. This was after last year, a number of foreign funds were successful at shaking up parts of Toshiba's board. Two proxy fights at Toshiba this year at the same time, one by Efficimo Capital, another by 3D Investment Partners. The Efficimo had its own internal candidate as one of its, its candidates up for election, and they were able to get their candidates nominated, and they lost according to the result. But then there was, I saw this Reuters report that an internal investigation by Toshiba has found that about 1,300 postal voting forms for its annual meeting went uncounted and they cited sources looking into this, and that one of the companies doing the proxy fights, 3D Investment Partners, called for a third-party investigation of the meeting. So tell us what you've learned about this situation. Seems like Toshiba is doing a lot of things to make it more difficult or impacting the results of the election, potentially. Yeah, so to take a step back on the fundamental question about whether this law is designed to inhibit activism. The processes are spelled out very clearly. If you want to nominate somebody who is related to you, you make an application and mm-hmm. you will get an answer within a, you know, within a reasonable amount of time. And if you want to make a proposal to spin off a business, you will get in a response within a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. The, the other requirement, which I think is a little bit over the top, is that if you want to vote for the other guy's proposal, you know, if you're Farrellon and you want to vote for Efficimo's proposal, you have to ask for permission. Mm-hmm. That's a little mm-hmm. embarrassing. But the bottom line is, there are all these things that an activist might want to do. They are not prohibited to you. You have mm-hmm. to apply and wait for permission. There are also three levels of sensitivity in terms of the companies involved. Toshiba and Fertree's target, J.R. Kyushu, they are considered the most sensitive. So anybody mm-hmm. who's making nuclear technology or anybody who's in telecom, they're going to review those applications much more rigorously than they would if you're investing in a leather company, which for odd Japanese reasons is considered sensitive. Oh, really? That's in the categories? <laughs> well, it's a long, it's a long cultural okay. story. But okay. in any case, 
So Efficimo and 3D went for what is potentially one of the most sensitive companies in Japan when it comes to national security. They're deeply involved in nuclear. They're deeply involved in semiconductors. So I think it was logical to expect that they were going to get more pushback than another company might, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it is true. I think there is a lot of sentiment in the market that what happened in this proxy fight is a little distasteful. This is likely to discourage investment in Japan, and I hope that it gets a full airing because it's not so transparent and not so clean what happened. The issue with 3D and the votes is simply that they were postmarked on time. They were delivered late. Mm -hmm. This investigation is going to go to Japan Post. And I want to make clear, it's not 3D's votes. It's some of 3D's votes. But mm -hmm. the expectation is also a lot of retail investor votes. And mm -hmm. Shiba seems to be making the point that, well, that's not really going to change the outcome. So we'll see. But it, it was a bad case. It's a bad case. And I wanted to note that the, uh, the Fissimo, uh, the, the one internal candidate on its uh, slate of director candidates, got 43% of the vote. And so it was fairly close. Potentially, if a few more you know, votes, big vote shareholders voted for him, he would have gotten installed on the board. So anyways, yeah. I'm curious if they'll have a new count of the votes after they look at these posts. I think that's very unlikely. There were okay. few mysterious abstentions of the votes. Okay. I think it's worth pointing out, though, I mean, if we want to criticize Japan, they did, in the end, allow Efficimo to run their senior guy as a candidate. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they didn't, you know, shut the door on him right away or they let him go, right? Mm -hmm. So there is that. But the way that there was machinations around that and the speediness of that approval or the timeliness of that approval and probably the conditions put on that approval were not conducive to improving Japan's reputation as a welcoming of you know shareholder activism. And then you, you pointed out to me that one interesting thing was they had actually had a larger stake and they reduced the stake and there's some sort of uncertainty around why they reduced their stake and they now own just under 10%. Is that right? There's, there's not really uncertainty because the PR firm working for Efisimo put out a press release. And if you look at Toshiba's website, there is something that says we don't consider anybody who owns more than 10% to be independent, or we say that that person has a conflict of interest. So we are not going to allow anybody to be an independent director who owns more than 10%. So Efisimo rapidly took their shareholding down from 15% to 9.9. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's def very different than in the in the U.S. when they're dealing with proxy fights, uh, um, but it, it's you know it's a national security uh, company, so it'll be interesting to see the conclusion of this. Do you, do you have any sense of whether three D investment partners got the third party investigation that they're seeking into the situation at Toshiba? You know, I know there was an internal investigation by Toshiba, but it seems like it may make sense to have a third party investigating it. Yeah, I don't think I have a comment about that. But again, just the main point is this is the first. AGM season where investors were operating under these rules. Mm -hmm. And I think to your point, you were talking about Oasis and Suncorp. There are probably plenty of examples we don't know about that went just fine. And Absolutely. I think it's still, everybody's still learning. And this was probably one of the most sensitive targets you could have picked out of anywhere. Mm -hmm. And what I hear from investors on this side of the ocean is that the United States is no picnic. Some countries in Europe are no picnic. So I think the trend towards this kind of regime getting tighter and tighter 
as a reaction against China is only going to continue. And it doesn't matter who's elected here in the United States, that trend is going to continue. We'll be wrestling with this problem for a while, I guess. Yeah, no, that's definitely very interesting. That's what a lot of people told me, that the foreign investment amendments were really not targeted at U.S. activist hedge funds. They were supposed to be discouraging Chinese sovereign wealth funds and trying to shake up things, uh, break up Japanese companies. Is that, I mean, is that a fair assessment that that's a big part of what those rules were about? I think that Japan has been under a lot of pressure from the United States and from other countries to tighten up security on their technology. And so this was their answer to that problem. But uh, as you know, in the UK, in France, and I think I read that Poland, because of the decline in stock prices due to the pandemic, they have forbidden anybody to bid on a Polish company because they don't want their (laughs) entire country bought up by foreigners, which one can understand, right? Yes. Um, So so as I say, I think globally, we're all headed in the same direction. And maybe the day will come when only Americans are allowed to buy American shares and French people are only allowed to buy French shares. But yeah, you know, the sad thing is that a number of activists, big activists have kind of given up and there are a number of middle sized activists who are giving up. It's people who can afford to play in the small companies who are still going to make a lot of money and do very well. And they're having a great time. But for, you know, companies who have tens of billions of dollars to invest, it's hard to come up with a good Japanese target that makes sense, that you can invest the time and the effort and have a reasonable number of ways to realize value. So I I don't expect to see Japan being the land of large-scale activism for quite some time, if ever. Private equity is a different story. There's probably a lot going on in private equity. Okay, so to wrap up here, you know, one of the big things that Western activists have always been excited about, the low-hanging fruit in Japan, there's a lot of cash on the balance sheet of these Japanese companies, but they have to go up against these Kiritsu interlocking director, interlocking companies. And just to wrap up in terms of the Abe administration's legacy, and do you feel like there's been some Western investors have made some headway in terms of breaking up these Kiritsus, or is it something that you think will be in Japanese a structure of Japanese companies for a long time to come? I think for the old companies, it probably will be. And you know, one of the interesting aspects of the pandemic is that I've been told and I've read that for a company's excuse, the excuse this year for not making progress on selling off your cross holdings was, I have to meet the guy face to face. I have to ask for permission to sell his shares. I have to make a deep bow. I have to pay a call in the bank. And because of the pandemic, none of this could happen. So there has been some progress in unwinding cross shareholdings, but there's still a lot to go. And I think in the case of the big companies and the traditional companies, and especially the domestic companies, it's going to be with us for a long time. Younger companies, faster growing companies, they get it. But Mm -hmm. not big old domestic companies. It's going to be much harder. All right. Thanks, Alicia, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, This has been the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral, and looking forward to chatting with you again. Thank you so much, Ron.